Hey, y'all. Um, my name is Casey, and I'm one of the interns here. In case Jana mentioned me earlier and you actually didn't know who I was, here I am. Um, I'm going to read our scripture tonight before Ben comes up, and it's from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is, why, this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Three new things we'll see tonight as we talk about the Spirit's collision with pluralism. Uh, first, know a person before you share Jesus with them. The second, know Jesus better than the person you share him with. Know Jesus better than the person you share him with. And finally, know what you're up against and know who's got your back. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have dealt with us mercifully. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. And you have not abandoned us to grope in the dark wondering, is there a God? Is he good? What does he think about me? Why am I here? What am I for? But in kindness and in mercy that we have not deserved, you have stooped down and you have opened eyes and softened hearts and forgiven us and released us from condemnation, 
from shame. My prayer is that tonight you would minister to us. Tonight, speak to us. Those who belong to you and those who don't yet belong to you, but you are after, you are pursuing. We've, we've asked you many times this fall, keep us from just reading about what you used to do and let us see you do it again in our lives and in our stories and in our time. We ask this in your name because we believe you're real and you're good and you're powerful. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I think this was three years ago, right after the election uh, in 2016, there is a CNN commentator by the name of Van Jones. And I ha uh, happened to be watching that uh, the day of the election and the day after, and uh, Van is not, he's not a Trump voter, he's a Democratic consultant, he was on there to kind of give his perspective, and he was shell-shocked that night, as everybody was. Uh, just assumed coming into that night someone else was going to win. He was just kind of deer in the headlights that whole night, shell-shocked, not knowing really what it all meant and why it happened. A few days later, he grabbed a camera crew and basically began to go on a, a tour through Appalachia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, some of these states that flipped and voted uh, for Trump. And he called it a listening tour. And, you know, this was like a show for, you know, a few months on CNN. And basically, he would sit in these people's living rooms, and he would hear their story. He would ask about their kids and their job, and, you know, did you grow up here? What's this town like? And then the conversation would get to kind of politics. Why? I'm, I'm curious. Why did you vote for this particular candidate? And they, they said some variety of, um, our kids are dying, heroin is killing this town, nobody's listening to us, our factories have been closing down for 20 years, our jobs are getting shipped overseas. And what Van Jones, his kind of his verdict after this whole thing was over is that we have not been listening to each other. There's two countries out there and they don't know each other. They're strange to each other, they're foreign to each other and they despise each other. And so what he wanted to do is go sit in the living rooms and listen and ask questions. Because it turns out that people get angry when you don't listen to them. You get angry when people don't listen to you. They assume. Uh, they might hear one line of what you believe or who you are, and they provide the rest of the narrative. People don't like it when we're not listened to. And when we don't listen to each other, we persist living in this bubble of us and them. Whatever the them is, if it's just whoever the people who are different than you are, it, just, it allows us to kind of live in this us and them mentality. If this is true with politics, if it's true with kind of uh, relationships and society, it's definitely true about religion and the gospel too. And that's the first thing we're going to talk about as we look at this passage, Acts 17, is know someone before you share Jesus with them, know the person. Or you could, you could uh, kind of blow it out to a, a group of people. Know the fraternity before you share Jesus with them. Know the campus. Know the family. Know the workplace. Know the town. Know the city. Know the country. Before you share Jesus with them, know a culture before you engage it. Which is another way of saying aim before you shoot. Or think before you speak. Or maybe listen and learn before you speak. So uh, Paul's interaction with these strangers in Athens, Greece, can 
hit our modern ears like fingernails on a chalkboard. If you were listening when Casey read, and I know sometimes long passages you can zone out, read it if you didn't listen to her. It will feel to you in your modern ear like fingernails on a chalkboard, even if you're a Christian, even if you believe everything that Paul said, because here is this man kind of asserting truth in a very pluralistic city that had boatloads of religions, boatloads of ideas about God. How could this guy be kind of just sitting there confidently asserting that this is the way? But if you pay attention to the passage, you'll see that Paul's conversation with these people uh, actually begins from a very humble, very humble place, very gracious and tender place. So uh, the first thing, verse 16, it says uh, he was greatly distressed by what he saw. What he saw when he got to Athens, it was his first time in Athens, Greece, this mecca of culture, of music, of politics, of art, of power. This place was a little bit on the decline now. Its neighboring city of Corinth was kind of on the rise, was taking a lot more of the business. So Athens was becoming a little bit of a, kind of like a Rome, Italy today, like a place where you go to see the way the world used to be and how it used to be awesome. But it's not really an epicenter today. So he's walking around Athens, and, he, and he's, he's, he's taking it all in, and he sees that this is a really religious city. And it says he is, uh, it says he is greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. That, that phrase literally means he was provoked in his spirit, which you could say is kind of Greek for he was triggered, the way we think about it. Big time, like what else would provoked in his spirit or greatly distressed at seeing something, what else would it mean? And yet, remember, we're talking about the humble beginnings of Paul's conversation with these philosophers. Uh, look at what he does next. He has been triggered. He has been uh, shocked by what he has seen. And instead of ventilating about how awful Athenian culture is or Greek culture Instead of packing up shop and going to the next town, say, maybe we'll find a few more Christians or maybe a few more religious people who are more open to hearing me. Maybe we'll move on to the next town and find a better place. He doesn't. He doesn't ventilate. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't move to the next town singing, thinking there's nothing for me to do here. He was greatly distressed. And what he did next is he went to the places in the city that he probably had a lot in common with certain people groups. Paul is a, is a, was a Jew. He was raised a Jew, trained as a Jew, was converted to Christianity years and years later. So guess where the first place he goes to have conversations about Jesus is? Synagogues. It was a place of conversation, a place of discussion. So he goes there. And then he starts kind of going and picking the next layer of lowest hanging fruit, the God-fearing Greeks, spiritual people, religious people who are curious. But he also goes out into the marketplaces. And, and he's kind of rubbing shoulders with who knows who there, people of every kind of a background, every kind of a belief. And that's where he runs into these um, ivory tower academics, ivory tower philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And they ask him to talk. Except it begins a little more awkward than that. It begins with some mockery and derision because what they say is they're saying, what is this babbler saying? What is this kind of airbag is a better way to say it. What is this kind of bag of hot air? What's he babbling about? And then they say, 
Maybe he is talking about or advocating for foreign gods. That's a loaded statement. Socrates was executed for spreading beliefs about foreign gods 400 years prior to this. That's a loaded statement to make in Athens, Greece. And those are the things that they're saying to Paul. And again, instead of kind of being triggered, instead of kind of going into his cell, instead of punching back, Paul hears it. He takes it. And and some of them say, actually, we've never heard this stuff you're talking about before. This is strange. Hey, come over here. We've got kind of this debate society that meets over there. Come with us. We want to hear more. And so Paul goes with them. He accommodates their curiosity, and he goes with them. And actually, the most humble thing about his speech is tucked away or hidden away, almost buried as a throwaway comment in the beginning of his speech. Verse 22, it says, Paul, then he's, he's at the Areopagus. Um, Rachel, go ahead and pull up a picture of the Areopagus. Some of us were there two years ago on this mission trip in Athens. Um, this is a mount, it's a rock outcropping uh, in Athens. It's the highest point in the city. Right over my head to the left is the Parthenon and where all the temples to Zeus were. Um, Paul is standing, that's what Paul is looking at as he's giving this speech to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He's looking at this stuff happen right before his eyes as he's talking about it. Um, So he's standing there. He's beginning to give a speech. He stood up on that rock and he says, People of Athens, I see in every way that you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an, an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So where do you see the humility in that? Where do you see the graciousness and the teachability in that? Paul said, I see that in every way you're religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. At some point when Paul was there in the days prior, uh, before he goes out and talks, Paul walks around their city. And he watches. And he sees. And he takes it all in. And he observes. And and, and the phrase here says he considered carefully or intently considered what he had seen. He noticed their objects of worship. He's starting to see themes and patterns arise about what makes Athenians tick. What's the emotional and religious and spiritual wind that fills their sails and makes life worth living? What brings meaning to these people? Before Paul ever talks, Paul had listened. Before he ever teaches, he had studied. Before he ever preached... He had observed. That is beginning in a place of humility. Paul is not a culture basher. Paul is not one who traffics in stereotypes. Paul is not one who has no non-Christian friends but pontificates about non-Christians all the time as if he knew about it. Paul is one who will sit and have a conversation, a give and a take, listening and speaking, back and forth, answering questions, answering doubts, answering skepticism. Dr. Christina Edmondson, she's a professor up at Calvin College, and she calls what she sees in in Paul here in Athens intercultural aptitude. Basically, it was a willingness to get out of his house and go rub shoulders with other people and get to know what life is like in their skin. What's it like to, uh, to, to be in their world? Like Van Jones was doing. Get out of the studio, get in the car, and go drive through the mountains and ask these people, why? What makes you tick? She says Paul is acting as this spirit-filled cultural ambassador, 
And what he's doing is he's demonstrating a, an appreciation of Greek culture. This spirit-filled appreciation, cultural appreciation of a foreign culture, of Greek culture. Let me read you a quote she said about that. Cultural appreciation means looking at something long enough to, to even know what you're actually critiquing. In order to judge, you have to rightly see. Appreciation doesn't mean giving someone a moral pass or moral neutrality. That's not what she means by appreciate or doesn't mean he liked Greek culture. It means he understood it. He grasped it. It means sitting with something long enough to see the system, the experiences, all the histories that shape it into what it is today. Or you could say sitting with a person long enough to understand the experiences, what makes you you, what has shaped your belief in Christianity? What has shaped your agnosticism? What has shaped your atheism? The question, why? Nobody just ends up in any of those things. You become that through a process. It's a really good story all the time. It's a very helpful story to understand why did you used to believe but you don't anymore? It's not just enlightenment that brings that to you. Stuff happened to you. You did something with your thoughts. You did something with doubts. Why? I'm curious because I care about you. That's what cultural appreciation means, listening before you speak. So like I said, Paul takes in because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's not Greek. He's Jewish. He's, he's an Israeli. And he's in a new town. And so he takes time to slow down and say, you tell me who you are. Let me hear your story. What common ground might exist between what you believe about the world, your worldview, and my worldview? Where's a starting point? Where can we start a conversation out of agreement? You see it this way, and I do too. How can we build after that? Paul is so, uh, apparently has learned so much in his days there, or maybe he picked, he picked this up just in studies prior to his visit to Athens, but he's even quoting back at the Greeks, Greek poets. Aristus and other poets who write these things down in the later part of his speech, he says, just as some of your own poets have said, we are God, we are, they say we are Zeus's offspring. He says we are God's offspring. So Paul is even, he's speaking their vernacular, their language. It's not, again, it's not like, okay, I've been here 10 minutes. I think I got it. I'm going to aim and I'm going to fire. He's there long enough to understand kind of how they think, how they operate even in quoting their own culture and their own poetry back at them, showing them, helping them see how even your own culture, even your own culture sees glimmers of the Christian worldview of the gospel. That's helpful to people. And so, well, what does, uh, what's the result of this? Paul is able to preach a gospel that actually reaches the audience that he's speaking to. And then the message that he has, it's not like magic where everybody's like, oh my gosh, where can I sign up? But it's plausible to many of them. It's credible because they know they've been listened to. He aimed, he took enough care in aiming that when he finally shot, when he finally spoke, it hit the mark. And that's what we're called to do in love to our campus and our roommates and our friends and our families as well. And I want to say this too because... Um, Right, as of yet, this isn't a very hard message for our particular moment in time to hear. It's basically saying like, 
I don't know. I mean, you might be thinking tolerance right now. You might be thinking, um, oh, I really, I like this. This is kind of like, hey, everyone do your own thing. Respect everything. Paul confronts what he would say are delusions in Greek religion. We're about to talk about it. He goes through rapid fire. He confronts. He challenges. But he also confirms. He also praises places where they're barking up the right tree, places where they get it too. We would do well to follow that. We would do well to come into any culture that's different than us, any people group that's different than us. Instead of speaking first, listen and look for places we can say, you know what, I got a lot to learn from you here. You're doing that in a really admirable way. Jesus confronts every culture. He challenges every culture. And in ways that are appropriate, he confirms pieces of every culture. So let me ask you this real quick. Let's consider the alternative real quick. What if Paul had just come in, kind of, he came in hot, he's angry about the idols he's seen, he can't believe it, he does that thing where you're a Christian and you expect the, the non-believing world to act like Christians too and you're just outraged? Or what happens when we go into communities speaking before listening and learning? We try to heal without ever having diagnosed. We try to show the way without ever learning the path ourselves or learning where they've been so far. Well, let me ask you this. How many times have we missed the mark? I know I'm painting with a big brush. How many times have have Christians missed the mark by assuming we know exactly what it's like to grow up gay and we go into that community and pontificate as if we understood the burdens they've borne? the isolation they've experienced, the shame they've experienced, the difficulty of coming to grips with who they think they are. And we rush in and we're ready to chatter, chatter, chatter. And we've never listened. How much damage have we done? How much damage have we done to maybe your, your science-minded friends because perhaps, maybe not you, but maybe, maybe some Christian celebrity somewhere has, you know, there's this phrase, angels or fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And they've just rushed into uh, complicated debates about evolution or about science and faith interplay and had never done the work of reading and studying and understanding. So they came in, they shot their mouth out. And now Christians as a whole in this culture, though we are the ones who invented and planted Harvard and Yale and Brown and Princeton, now have no intellectual credibility in this culture. Could it be because we have rushed into places talking before we ever listened? How does that happen in 200 years? The people who planted all the schools, all the Ivy Leagues, are now the people who are laughed at. I think this has something to do with it, and I think there's, there's room for repentance for all of us. If you say you follow Jesus, for us to listen a little bit more. And again, I'm not saying that we just you become a doormat, and you're like, oh, yeah, whatever, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Of course we challenge, of course we critique, but graciously and with our ears open as well. This is true at an interpersonal level too. Um, I've kind of shared some of these pieces of our story before, but um, Anna and I, when we were dating, it was from across the country. I'd never dated anyone, and I was and am an idiot, and so I made it pretty complicated, much more than it had to be. And so I just got us into some very confusing places trying to figure out is this God's will? Uh, am I up for this? Is she up for this? Can we do this? 
Um, and when we kind of, I've probably shared our story with 50 people during those two years, like in sit down, like we need to meet up, I need to get coffee with you or whatever. And you know what, um, though most of those 50 people were extremely loving to us and well-intentioned, they listened for about two minutes and they said, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, when that happened with me and my wife, here's what we did. And guess what? Their story was never my story. I felt lonelier after talking to them, more hopeless, more left behind. Like, how are all of these people getting it and like crushing it in this? And I'm like, the more they talk, the more I feel like, and you're just confirming that I really am the only one on the planet who is struggling with these doubts or whatever. Uh, the, difference, the difference here was Tuck and Stacy, Chris and Bonnie and Joel and a few others and even my parents and some people who took the time to listen. And they listened and they listened. And I'm not just talking about one like big failed swoop, one like marathon dinner. Probably like five or six times to the point that I was embarrassed to say, can we talk again? Uh, but you know what? When Tuck, when Chris, when Joel, when they finally spoke to me, they hit the bullseye. It felt like they had read my mind. I felt known. I felt like I was on the map. I had hope. I could, I could really sink my teeth into what they said. I felt like other people came. If I was stuck in a pit, other people came and looked down at the pit and said, oh, Ben, don't worry. Just do these things and you can get out. And I felt like Tuck and Stacy, Chris and Bonnie, Joel and others got in the pit with me. And they groaned with me. And when I was able, they helped me climb out. That's what we're talking about here, friends. Francis Schaeffer is one of the greatest apologists of our day. He died a while back, but he's on par with C.S. Lewis. Uh, he said, if I had an hour with a non-believer on a plane, and we were talking, he said, I'd listen for 55 minutes and talk for five. How well-aimed would his words have been? How custom-fitted to the desires and the heartache and the, even the deceptions of that person by the time he opened his mouth. That man has written more books than their seats on the plane. And he said, I would listen for 55 minutes and talk for five. The second thing I said we'd talk about is not just know the person before you share Jesus, but know Jesus better than the person you share Jesus with. If all you do is know the culture, the culture, the culture, you become an expert in like American culture, secularism, whatever, and you're like, I feel, I feel like, you know, the gears are greased and I can kind of go out there and do my apologetics thing. If all you do is know the culture, or if you're just the tender friend who understands, I understand, I can empathize, and that's it. Those kind of friends are helpful for like a day, but you don't go back to those friends, Right? Because they can't help you. If Tuck and Stacy, Chris and Bonnie, Joel, all these people had just said, oh, Ben, I feel for you. And that's all they ever said. I'm still stuck. I'm still in the pit. They met me in the pit and they had somewhere to take me. Different ways of thinking, different ways of looking through my situation that actually began to turn the lights back on and make sense of things. If all you are is the empathetic friend who understands really well, you're not going to be helpful to anybody in a, in, a, in a profound way. You'll be, you will be helpful, not in the way they need you to be helpful. So how do we become helpful to our friends? 
Well, I think it's knowing Jesus better than the one you share Jesus with. Look, I know we don't assume that you're at a particular place with God here. That's how it's safe to come as you are and whatever questions you have. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what's this word gospel he keeps saying? Really, the gospel is the announcement. It's the message that there is a perfect compatibility between who you are not and who the one true and living God is. And it says that's good news, which is what the word gospel means. It is great news. Who you are not morally, who you are not relationally, the friend you're not, the son or the daughter you're not, the the lazy employee you might be or the lazy student, all that you are not is perfectly compatible with this gracious, compassionate, forgiving, sin-covering God. If the job of the Christian, the job of the church that Jesus has given us is to help people see that compatibility, then it would stand to reason there's two things you got to know, two people. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to know him. That's why we have a book table, by the way, so you can plumb the depths of who he is and how he acts and how he works. And you got to know your friends, too. We've already talked about the know your friends part. But where do you see it in Paul's speech? I'm going to race through this super fast because there's a lot there's all these people. Athens is a religiously pluralistic town. The, the, the traditional religion of Greek polytheism was on the decline. Only old people believed that stuff. All the young people were all about these new philosophical trends, Stoicism, Epicureanism. Um, and uh, Paul is on this rock talking about the God who is is not a God who has served dinner and brought sacrifices, and he's looking at the Parthenon as people take sacrifices to Zeus as he says this. And he's saying that God is not a God that you can control and manipulate and localize and kind of keep on your shelf like Elf on the Shelf to just bless you and make things go your way. He is not a thing. He is reality. To the Epicureans, they were the ones who kind of believed that when when the cat's away, the mice will play. Or out of sight, out of mind. There are gods, but they live so far away and they're so happy and just their bellies are full where they are. They don't care what we're doing here. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You only live once. That was the Epicureans, the Stoic pantheist. God can be known or the divine can be known, but only kind of like in a really good yoga move when you can really focus your mind on the divine logos. He's really, he's really abstract, impersonal. It's kind of a fuzzy feeling, but you can attain it. The Greek polytheists, God, the gods merely tolerate us. We talked about that last week. It's a giant eye roll anytime you need anything from them. Really? Again? And the academics, and these are the ones who built the statue to an unknown god. The academics, as they were known, were the fence sitters of the Athenian culture. We had a lot of those in our moment. And they were the ones who perpetually sat on the fence and they said, we can't know if there's gods or not, or if there is a god or not. You just can't know. There might be, there might not. We'd love it if there is, but just in case there is, we're going to kind of have this statue in honor of him or her or them. But they never really made a decision. They decided to not make a decision, which is a decision. They decided to bury their heads in the sand. These are the people Paul is talking about. These are the people Paul is preaching the gospel to. He knows his audience. He has custom-fitted his presentation of Jesus raised from the dead to these particular people. Here's how. He says, God, to the Epicureans who think the gods are far off and don't care, he says, God is not far off as you think. He is near, and he wants to be near. He's not just geographically near. 
In love, he is near. He is near because he wants to be near. He wants to be known, he says to the Stoics, who think God's really hard to know. He's just abstract. He wants to be known. He said he's, he's determined your place and your moment in history that you might reach out and know he is there. He says he is not controllable. He's not controllable like an idol. And this is good news for us, friends. To the Epicurean, it's good news. God is actually near. To the Stoic, it's good news. God wants to know you. To the idolater, which is all of us, the people who take things God made and try to turn it into God so that we can control our lives and not have to get ambushed by random stuff, he says God is not controllable, which is good news for us because all of us think God is another thing in my schedule or my life that I have to manage, my spiritual life. I got to manage it. I got to give time for it. I got to squeeze it into my life. As if it's a thing. God is not a thing. He's your maker. And he's the maker of all the stuff that makes up your life. And he's your sustainer. How do you make time for one who is reality? For the one who's the maker of all things? How do you fit him into your life? How do you fit him into your schedule? This is great news if you're a control freak like me. God is not one you can control. He is in control. He calls the shots. He governs everything. And he gives life to everything. And in this way, he's relevant. We are his offspring. Even the, even, even the Greek philosophers knew that. We are the God's offspring. Paul says, yes, we are his offspring. You bear his image. John Calvin said, every man, woman, and child has the seed of religion in their heart. You know there is a God. There is a God consciousness in your heart. It doesn't matter what your background is. That's why you feel guilty. That's why you dream really big dreams. That's why you have an innate sense of the way the world's supposed to be and you get angry when anything deviates from that. It's why you're a little bit unnerved about dying. There is a sense of the divine in you because God put it in you, the seed of religion. Paul is taking all that he knows about the Greeks and all that he knows about Jesus and he's showing them the compatibility. Add all this up and what is Paul doing? He is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of what every other worldview and every other religious system or belief system or atheistic system is groping in the dark to attain. If you've thrown religion to the wayside and you're like, I'm after truth, you only get truth in the one who is truth. Not in your interpretation, your fallible interpretation of truth. You want justice, you only get justice in a just God who sets the world right and seeks vengeance against unjust people and injustice and yet justifies and forgives guilty people in a righteous and just way. Herman Boving, I love this quote, and hang with me on this because some of you are going to hear this and you're going to think I'm going rogue. Herman Boving is as reformed as reformed gets. He is as orthodox as orthodox gets. He is the guy that all the people that I always quote, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, all these guys read Herman Boving, a Dutch theologian, to learn what they know. This is what he says about Jesus being the fulfillment of what every other world religion and belief system is groping to get. I'll start this, and Rachel will pull it up when we get to the pertinent part. The various religions, however mixed with error they may have been, to some extent met people's religious needs. 
and brought consolation amidst the pain and sorrow of life. What comes to us from the pagan world are not just cries of despair, but also expressions of confidence and hope, resignation, peace, submission, patience, all the elements and forms that are essential to religion, though corrupted, nevertheless also appear in pagan religions. Here and there, even unconscious predictions and striking expectations of a better and purer religion are voiced. Here we go. Hence, Christianity is not only positioned antithetically as the opposite of paganism. It is also paganism's fulfillment. Christianity is the true religion and therefore also the highest and the purest. It is the truth of all religions. What in paganism is the caricature or the cartoonish version? The living original is here. What is appearance there is essence here. What is sought there can be found here. Christ, uh, sorry, Christ is the promised one to Israel and the desire of all the nations. Friends, he's saying that Christ, he's not saying that all religions have a piece of the truth. And no, Christian, he's saying Christianity is the truth that everybody else is groping in the dark to lay hold of. Christianity is the glasses on your fuzzy, nearsighted eyes that can't see anything that finally makes sense of the world, all of it. If you want to know God, if you want to know yourself, you want to know truth, you want to know the physical, material world, the Bible's claim is that you must come to Jesus and know it through him, that he must deal with you before you can rightly deal with the world. The last thing that we end with is this, and it's very short, and it's just really an observation about this, and this is for my, maybe my Christian friends in the, uh, in the room tonight. You got to know what you're up against as you share this gospel with your friends and classmates and fraternity brothers and sorority sisters. You've got to know also who's in your corner. Uh, Tim Keller's a pastor in New York, and he's been there 25 or 30 years planting churches that are you know, exploding in attendance uh, over the past 25 years in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in the Bronx. Uh, and he said, what I've noticed as a trend over the years is that the time it takes for a person who... Uh, Someone in my church who was converted out of some other worldview into Christianity, it seems there's a trend It takes about three to four years and 15 to 20 different encounters. 15 to 20 different, hey, can we meet up? Can we talk about that message I heard? What about this evil and suffering in the world? I don't know what to make sense of this. 15 to 20 times of getting together before the dots connect and the lights come on. That's a slow, tedious process for the one who's doing the meeting up on both sides of the table. The Apostle Paul in this, he gives this speech. He's an apostle. This apostle heals people in other chapters, resurrects a dead guy in one chapter. And he's preaching. This is the moment of his life. He's in the, the epicenter of the religious and cultural world at the time. And he gets the microphone. And it says a lot of them just laughed him off. They laughed at him. They laughed him off the stage. Some believed. Some of them believed. And they, that day, the lights came on and they saw not only God as he is, beautiful and merciful and compassionate and atoning for their sins through Jesus, but also they saw their world for the first time ever and their culture and themselves for the first time ever. Last week in Acts 14, did you miss it there? 
Paul gives this great sermon there, and it, they stoned him afterwards. They tried to kill him. There was only enough converts from that speech to look at what they thought was a dead corpse around him. Maybe like six or seven people can fit around a body on the ground. And all the others wanted to kill him. Very mixed results. It's important that you know this as you move towards your friends in love, listening to them and understanding their world, knowing Jesus and how he is compatible to your friends' dreams and burdens and struggles and groping in the dark. But you've got to let Jesus be Jesus. You're, there's no formula to this. There's no say this and this and this. And that's transactional. That's formulaic. That's dehumanizing. Jesus will be Jesus. He is raised up from the dead, reigning over all the earth forever. He is king. He is life giver. And he is judge. We are not called to manipulate people into anything. We are called to lay the truth plainly and in an understandable way before their feet and in a loving way and to let Jesus be Jesus who gathers his church, who opens eyes, who softens hearts, who plants faith. This frees us from when you are at that small group Bible study and one person comes or you've been sharing the gospel with your brother back home every Christmas break of your life. This frees you to hold him and hold that with an open hand and not have to try to get a result. It frees you to pray for him. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, if you had not broken into our world and our lives and preached the good news that you are the savior of sinners, if you had not told us what's happening on the cross is not just a political firebrand being snuffed out, but what it was was God himself bearing the curse that his people earned, that we might receive the blessing you earned. If you had not told us that, we would still be groping in the dark. Father, I pray for those who are in the light that they would know you more and more. And I pray for those in the dark that they, they would walk in light, they would see you as you are. We ask this in your name. Amen.